2 Corinthians tonight. As we continue in our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, we'll read one verse and pray. And these ladies will sing for us 2 Corinthians 7 verse 4. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all of our tribulation. I preach tonight on the subject of how to console your preacher. Well, pastor, does, does a preacher actually need console? Paul did. And you look at the life of Paul. I mean, this guy was a rough, rough fella. And all that he suffered and all that he dealt with, you would think that at no point in his life would he need comfort or consolation. And yet he says in verse 4, I am filled with comfort. When Paul ministered from, from day one, you know, his life is threatened. They let him down the wall in a basket. But this man, as he traveled, no planes, no trains, no cars, no town car, no, no suburban, no minivan, no leather seats, no AC, no La Quinta, not, not even Motel 6. Uh, he was on the road, uh, normally sleeping on the side of the, the road, and life in danger. But the highlights of his ministry were being stoned and beaten and imprisoned with incredible suffering. And here's what he does. Paul never whined. I, I don't even think he thought twice about the things that he suffered. But this is one of the rare times in the scripture he actually mentions that things were, were pretty precarious here at the moment. Look what he says in verse 5. For when we were come into Macedonia... Our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. How many of you realize Paul was not an exaggerator? And if he were, the Holy Spirit of God wouldn't let him exaggerate in Scripture. But he wasn't. And the Holy Spirit of God didn't allow that. And when he said our flesh had no rest, that means things were pretty dire. We were troubled on every side. Without were fightings. Within were fears. Now go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. So we remember the depths of despair that he was facing at this moment in his ministry. Verse 8, We would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure. Wait a minute, this was Paul. We're not talking about those weaker in the faith. We're not talking about John Mark who jumped ship. Or those that traveled with Paul and decided they prefer a different traveling partner. This... This is a man that had endured hardness as a good soldier. And he said, we were pressed above measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life, and we had the sentence of death in ourselves. I know preachers have preached this out of context and talk about the spiritual sentence of death, but Paul's not talking in a spiritual sense. He's talking in a fleshly sense that he literally, we have no details of the exact circumstance, but he said, I thought I was going to die. I, I literally thought this was the end of my ministry. That's what Paul is saying. But God, verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death. We're talking about incredible circumstances. So, go back to our text, chapter 7. When he talks about comfort, uh, you know, if you found yourself stoned to death, which Paul did at one point in his ministry, literally stoned to death, God raised him back to life, and he didn't seek comfort. 
comes out of the jail in Philippi, and the Bible says uh, that the authorities trying to rush him out of the city once they find out that he's a Roman. And he said, no, you're not going to rush me out. I'm going to go back and comfort my new Christian. They, they weren't comforting him. I mean, the guy had just faced a beating that left him near death, and they're not hugging his neck to comfort him. He's hugging their necks to comfort them. So if Paul did not need comfort after being stoned to death, imprisoned, and beaten, he needed no comfort after he was, uh, the Bible says, shipwrecked on three occasions. But the time that we read about in the end of the book of Acts, he's out on the island, and those people are saying, we're going to die. They're looking for lifeboats trying to escape, and Paul is doing what? Comforting them. So we see Paul, despite his suffering, was always comforting those around him and not seeking comfort. But hold on for a second. So we finally find a point in his life. Isn't it great when someone you hold up in high esteem, you look at as a hero, you finally see a, a, a chink in their armor, a weakness in their flesh. You say, come on, he can't be superhuman, right? It, it's nice. So I, I'm, I'm pretty happy right here. I'm a happy man. I'm, I'm not even a, a, a small percentage of what Paul was as a preacher or as a missionary or as a diehard. And it's just nice to know that he actually needed a little comfort, a little consolation. And he said, I got some comfort. Now, let me burst your bubble. He didn't receive comfort because they sent him a physical therapist to give him a back massage. He didn't receive comfort because the doctor came with the right medication. He didn't receive comfort because Titus came, connected to some kind of civil authority, or to a judge and said, you know what, this sentence of death that's been placed upon you, we're going to have that nullified. I've got someone that we've bribed. I've got someone in a higher office that's going to speak on your behalf. How many of our prayer requests are all about the physical? How much of our thoughts are consumed with the physical? How much of our life rotates around what I have and what I need and how I feel and how much I make and how much I've saved and how much I've earned and how much I've kept? There's an extreme danger in the average Baptist church of asking the question, so how are you doing today? Got to be selective in who you ask that question, right? Because someone might tell you. Someone might take 30 minutes to tell you. Now, here's the thing about the Apostle Paul. You, you know, they miraculously see him come back from the dead after being stoned to death. Can you imagine what his body or his head looked like at that moment? He stands up. Uh, what are you doing, Paul? I, I got to get to the next city to preach the gospel. I mean, after Paul's beaten in Philippi, he travels 100, 100 miles down to Thessalonica in that condition to preach the gospel. So let me, let me just break the bad news. You've seen kids of all ages, you know, fall, hurt themselves, run to mom, not dad, because mom will be a source of comfort, and dad's just like, what happened? Your head fell off? Find some duct tape. <laughs> tape it back on and get on with your life. So you lost a gallon of blood. You'll be okay. <laughs> Eat some iron pills. You're, you, you'll recover. But in Paul's case, I don't think Paul, not even from Luke, not even from Barnabas, not even from Timothy or Tychicus, I don't think Paul, and, and if you look in, Philipp, in the book of Philippians, when he talks about Epaphroditus risking his life 
for the sake of those people. You know why Epaphroditus did that? Because his mentor in the faith did that kind of thing. Paul thought nothing of his physical welfare when it came to the cause of Christ. You say, Pastor, should we ignore our physical well-being? No, I don't think we should. It's hard to minister for the sake of the gospel if you're not well physically. But Paul did. Paul lived in beast mode. So do you understand where we're going tonight? So isn't it strange when you find someone who lived this way talking about comfort and consolation? I thought you were superhuman, Paul. I didn't know anybody needed to comfort you. And he said, guys, I just want you to know I got some comfort, got some consolation. Okay, let's see why or how that ha- happened. He's, he said, when I was in Macedonia, the Bible does not give us the details of that moment. But he had sent Titus to the church at Corinth. Now, when, when we talk about church problems, Corinth was a, a pretty big headache. We see that in the first book of Corinthians. Paul writes that scathing letter. Now, this was obviously done by the Holy Spirit of God. We, we believe in inspiration. And Paul even named names called people out, dealt with someone that was fornicating with a family member, uh, people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, uh, women with short hair, men with long hair, uh, their divisions and strife. Some people didn't even claim Paul as their uh, pastor. It, it, it was a big disaster. And Paul confronts the sin of that church. He doesn't know how they're going to receive it. He sends Titus down there to see how the problems are being dealt with. But he was supposed to meet with Titus back in Troas, you got to remember, they don't have cell phones or emails. They have no lines of communication. So Paul's went around the city saying, where's Titus? And he's already got enough on his plate. He is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. I believe this is probably Paul's lowest point in the ministry. And now you add the burden of Titus not being where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there. And Paul's mind is racing. Is he dead? Is he alive? Did he encounter more problems there at the church at Corinth? And look what he says, verse 6. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us. Hold, Hold on for a second. By the coming of Titus. So... He says, with all that was going on, I needed some comfort. I need some consolation. I was cast down. God provided that comfort through Titus. So I guess Titus showed up to town with a bag of $100 bills. That would comfort the average Baptist, right? Or a medical doctor or a lawyer. Maybe there was a pastor. Maybe he came with a team of super lawyers that was going to help him deal with whatever battle he was facing, whatever jurisdiction. Maybe it was a corrupt governor or corrupt authority that was overstepping his boundaries. Maybe he just needed some painkillers. Maybe something a little stronger than ibuprofen. Now, you know, you, you, come on, you guys know me well enough. I'm being sarcastic. Can someone say amen? We know none of that was the case. Titus wasn't bringing any of that. So what is it that, that Titus came with that brought Paul such great comfort and consolation? Verse 7, not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more 
Hold on, we're getting, we're getting to the reason that Paul had received such consolation. When he sent this letter to the church of Corinth, he knew there was strife. He, he knew his relationship with them was tense. He, he knew things were not going well. He didn't know how they would respond to such scathing rebuke. Now, this was an open letter. Remember, in the New Testament, these letters were being sent to local churches, but copies were being made, and they were being dispersed. So here's, here's a letter received by the church of Corinth that was an open letter to other churches that included very personal rebuke for the church of Corinth. How would you like it if I left, sent a letter of rebuke, and made sure that every other church in the neighboring area received the same letter with the same names? That would be a little uncomfortable. For though I made you sorry, verse 8, with a letter, I, I do not repent. Let me just say this, church. A pastor's job is to preach the truth, not to avoid it. Pastors are doing that in this generation. Uh, the debt is so great, and they've gotten themselves so deep in debt by borrowing millions to build complexes they didn't need to minister to people that are simply passing through, that they've handcuffed themselves in what they can't preach for fear that someone will be offended and leave. And someone will be offended and leave if you preach the truth. Boy, you can empty out the average Baptist church today by simply preaching the whole counsel of God. He said, I'm, I'm not repenting over the letter that I sent. He said, that, that was done by God and the Holy Spirit and that needed to be done and sin needed to be addressed. He said, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now, he said, I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorrow, sorry after a what? After a godly manner. Do you want to know how to comfort a preacher? Repent! Paul said, my duty is to preach the word of God. My duty is to confront sin. We, we have a generation of Christians who are no different than Presbyterians or Catholics or Mormons. There is simply a ritual that is going to church, uh, lifting a hymn book, listening to the preaching, going home, and for the most part, remaining unchanged. Can you imagine if people actually confronted sin, confessed sin, repented of sin, the spiritual growth in the average Baptist church would be pointing towards the moon. I mean, who would need discipleship classes? You just come to church, get the devil preached out of you. You make things right. You go out and get over your spirit. You get over your anger. You get over your jealousy. And you get past your gossip. And you respect your elders. And you establish a work ethic. And you love God. And you get in the book. And you get on your knees and you pray. And whatever the preacher says that you're not doing, you repent of that. You repent of your immodesty. You repent of your fleshly behavior. You repent. When God addresses it. And Paul said, I, through the word of God, I had to point finger and faces. And he said, I didn't know what the response would be. But Titus has come back with the good news. He is overjoyed by the fact that he has seen in this congregation true biblical repentance. He said, my back still hurts and my body's still scarred. And 
and I faced the sentence of death and things went sour in Macedonia, but I was comforted because my biggest concern was not the physical. My biggest concern was the spiritual. And he said, my, my worry was that instead of repenting, you'd overlook the fornication. And instead of repenting, you'd continue to abuse the Lord's Supper. Instead of repenting, we'd have men looking like women, women looking like men. I said, Titus, when he came, comforted me. Parents, you ever had to deal with a child or a teenager? And you didn't want to have to confront them. Teachers, you ever have to confront a student in your class or youth pastor, a teenager in your youth group or someone in your ministry? Sin had to be confronted and you agonized and you prayed and you said, Lord, how can I do this properly? And then you realize there's no proper way to deal with rebellion because if someone doesn't want to repent, it's never going to end up well anyway. But you know God has made you a spiritual leader to confront the sin. The issue is, how is that person going to respond to the confrontation? And in this case, Paul said, my greatest concern was not what I was dealing with on the physical level or the emotional level, but on the spiritual level, how would the church of Corinth deal with the rebuke? And I don't know how many times I've had to deal with sin, and it may have been in the college, or it may have been in the high school, or the junior high, or in a church, or in Spanish church, or English church. I remember several years ago, we had our churches in, in Mexico, and we had my Timothy in the faith, done an amazing job planning that church and starting a Christian school, one of, probably the, one of the best soul winners I've ever known in my life. And God was blessing him and using him and then suddenly he found himself in a bad spot and in sin. And I sent Titus, Matt, Matt Johnson, Annetta, who rarely sees her husband anyway, suddenly is dealing with an additional burden, not just of their ministry, but of my ministry. And we're trying to sort through sin. And then I'm wondering as we look at this church and, and I'm thinking we have a property, we have a building, and we have a work. Is this going to be blown apart because of sin? And how do we deal with those properly? And you're, you're, I guarantee you this church whatever physical issues I've ever dealt with, whatever uh, financial problems I've ever handled, those are so minor in comparison to the health of a church and the weight that a pastor carries when you've, through, through God's blessing, birthed the ministry and, and discipled new Christians and watched that grow in, into a body and you want God bless that and suddenly it's being rocked at its very foundation because of sin, and you're only wondering what's going to happen because at the end of the day, whether it's mad, and I traveled back years ago, most of this, I didn't even reveal to Capital City. But it was trip after trip, and I was dealing with problems. I was trying to hold a work together, trying to restore a man that was in sin, trying to reconcile a relationship, and, and trying to figure out, Lord, how do we make this situation work and yet have you honored and glorified, and at the end of the day, my comfort came through the repentance that was found in the majority. Now, not regrettably, it wasn't everyone that repented. Some didn't repent of their bad spirits. Some, some didn't repent of their allegiance to someone who was in sin. But at the end of the day, that church now is held together and is doing well and has new leadership, and we thank God for everything that's involved and what God did through all of that. But the consolation and comfort was found in repentance. Church, let me ask you this. 
Paul, Paul looks, let's, let's just read the next verse because he identifies what true repentance is. He says in verse 9, how rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorry to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner. We, we know remorse is not repentance. You've seen that in kids. Uh, young people are master manipulators. When they, they get in trouble, they know how to turn on the tear faucet. They know punishment is around the corner. Dad, I'm so sorry. I mean to tell you, Mom, I can't believe. I can't believe I... Take a look to see if she's buying it. can't believe I, I did that. They're not sorry. They're just sorry that they got caught and they're in trouble. But when it's a godly sorrow, it leads to repentance. He said, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but sorrow of the world worketh death. Verse 11, now here it is. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness. Real repentance brings a what? A carefulness in us when looking at that sin and dealing with that sin and dealing with temptation. Someone that is truly repentant says, I know the trap. I know uh, what, what I did. I know my wrongdoing. I know my, my weakness. And I've got to be more careful to avoid the same sin. What clearing. It's not hard to identify a real repentance. You've seen that in your kids. You've seen when you dealt with sin and they left and there was no clear. You can see a clearing in the face. When the heart is cleared, it's revealed in the countenance. What indignation. Isn't it amazing? The world is indignant at what they consider to be injustices. So we will break windows and loot stores and burn businesses and block off streets. Because we are indignant. When's the last time you got indignant about sin? You found something that was ravishing your home. You found sin that was devastating your family. You became indignant. Should I, I've got to take steps to destroy this. Yea, what fear. What zeal, what revenge. Now, we could, we could talk all night. The purpose is not to reveal what real repentance is because I think we all can identify it. We all understand it. But there is a change of passion when someone is truly repentant. And that passion goes from evil doing to doing that which is righteous. In all things, you have approved yourselves to be what? Uh, we've used the illustration here one Knows that a child's told, uh, go, go get that room cleaned. And a child has no intention because it's not in their heart to make sure it's clean. They just want to make sure it's covered and make sure the mom approves. So uh, things are thrown in the closet, underneath the bed, and wherever else they can stack it and pack it and in the drawers. And moms are smarter than that. And they immediately, they know their children, they know their intentions, and they... Come in and take a look underneath the bed. If they're young enough to actually get out on their knees and, and, and take a look. They're fearful of putting their hand there because it, it might be something gooey or icky or filthy or clothes that need laundered or snakes that have been hidden. What, whatever the case. I mean, some kids, the bottom of their closet is so filthy, so dirty, you could dig for worms in the dust and dirt buildup. They just think if you open up the door and pack it in, that's as good as clean. 
Some of the most dangerous places in the world are found in front of closet doors. Mm -hmm. You open that thing up. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Stacked and packed. It's, it's simply hidden. And that's the way the average Christian deals with sin. So if it's mentioned, if it's highlighted, if it's preached about, I've just got to find a place to put it where no one else notices. Put it where my wife doesn't notice or put it where my kids don't notice or put it where my church doesn't notice. There's not an actual clearing. And here's what Titus said. Titus came back and he said, Paul, uh, we know what repentance is. And I've seen it there in the church at Corinth. And Paul is what? Comforted by the repentance. Look what it says, verse 12. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus. He said, everyone's been comforted. You know what repentance did? It was a group hug. It was a church group hug. We've made things right. We're doing right. Things have been made clean. We've confronted sin. We confess sin. We dealt with sin. And Titus, he's overjoyed. He comes back. He can't wait to tell Paul what's going on. Revival, Paul, has come to the church at Corinth. You don't have to be concerned because his spirit was you cannot be refreshed by a church that is overrun with sin. You can't be refreshed in a home that's overrun with sin. You're comforted when your kids repent. You're comforted when those under your ministry that have been caught in sin repent. A pastor is comforted when a crowd is confronted with their sin and repents. Verse 13. His spirit was refreshed by you all. Verse 14. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I'm not ashamed. Now, I, I love this about a pastor. If you go to our works in Mexico or Argentina, it won't take you long to find some kind of problem. All you, you may marvel at the building of Pachuca and say, that's gorgeous, that's wonderful. And then you see some people and say, ooh. You, you, you may look at, at Edgar and Nancy and smile and then, you may see some of the new converts and say, boy, that, that man needs to grow. But a pastor's different. These are his children. You talk to any parent, they're just kind of blind to the faults. You know, their children are the most beautiful, the most intelligent. Their grandchildren are the most wonderful. You're blinded by DNA. And a pastor is blinded by the DNA of his church. And, and Paul, okay, Paul just wrote a scathing letter. He's sending Titus to see how they respond. But as Titus goes... His first visit to Corinth, Paul is bragging on this boatload of knuckleheads. And he's saying, oh, man. <laughs> he's sharing testimonies of the new converts, and he's going through how he came into town, and he preached, and at the time that he spent, the people got saved and baptized. And he said, there's such a fervor, such a love for God. And, and he's not telling them, man, I'm dealing with fornication and drunkenness and all kinds of division. There's some of them who don't want to see me again. And... Uh, uh, by the way, if, if you stand 10 feet behind some of them, you can't tell which is the male and which is the female. But it's a great church. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I, I don't regret boasting. Of all the churches you're going to boast about, Paul, I think I would skip over the church at Corinth. 
You know, you know, church, there's a lesson here. It might not be a bad idea occasionally to get positive about your church. That wouldn't be a bad idea. Well, Pastor, you know there's some people in our church with problems. We'd be in heaven if there weren't. You may be the biggest one. Amen? Oh, Pastor, you know, there's, there's some problems with our junior church. You are number one, two, and three of those problems. Amen? So don't tell me about number four. Let's deal with number one, two, and three first. He's boasting about this church. He said, I'm not ashamed, but as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found in truth. And, okay, here's a message. So I need everyone that fell asleep over the last 20 minutes to wake up because there's an important point here. You might get it before we go home. His inward affection is more abundant toward you whilst he remembereth. Look at Look what the next phrase says. The obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. This is consolation. Titus comes back and he says, Paul, the whole church is repentant. The whole church has made things right. There's not a rebel left in the church at Corinth. Now that's comfort. Pastor, we don't have a rebellious teen. We don't have a rebellious kid. We don't have a rebellious mother. We don't have a rebellious man. They have all made things right. Everything that was addressed is cleaned up. I preached a few services. The altars were filled. There was weeping. And anything that was mentioned was immediately dealt with in a spiritual manner. Now look what he says, verse 16. I rejoice, therefore, that I have this as consolation. How do you have confidence in a crowd this crooked? Repentance. You know what brings consolation to a preacher? A crowd that's hooked on repentance. And they say, it doesn't matter what's preacher, the Holy Spirit of God addresses it. Let's just confess it, address it, deal with it, get rid of it. Let's obey the Holy Spirit of God. If it's a sour spirit... If it's anger, if it's jealousy, if it's gossip, if it's pride, if it's immodesty, if it's spiritual apathy, oh God, help me just to deal with it. Christians, you know, haven't you go to the average church? It doesn't matter who preaches or how spirit-filled they are, the altars are empty. And people have been living the same life, same sins, For 10, 15, 20 years, there's no one that can look at their life and actually measure spiritual growth. I hope Brother Sullivan, who's been under my ministry for 12 years, can look at his pastor and say, that same kid that came here 12 years ago has grown a little bit spiritually. If he can't measure tangible spiritual growth in his pastor, he's got problems with his pastor. That means he has a pastor who's never repented. I'll tell you, one storm will finish. We had a missionary come down to Mexico and he preached. When he preached, he preached the devil out of us. And I went to go drop him off the airport. We were probably, we're in Mexico City, 10 miles from the airport. A place where you never want to stop, just put it that way, unless you want to risk your life. And I asked him, I said, Preacher, would you, would you do me a favor? You were with us for three or four days. I said, I don't get uh, a lot of feedback. I said, uh, we, we don't have as many Missionaries and pastors visit as, as I'd like. I'd like for you to be totally honest. 
and just tell me some things you saw in me and in the church that I need to address. I'm glad we just had 10 minutes. Boy, he unloaded. He said, Pastor, I want to start with your sin on the platform. I said, okay, let's start there. And he said something. He was right. I didn't even realize I was doing it. He said, I want to tell you something I saw with your kids. And I dropped him off. When I dropped him off, I turned back around, and I started driving home. The Holy Spirit of God said, you going to deal with this? Or are you going to drive? And I said, God, I'm in Mexico City. He said, are you going to deal with this? Because by the time you get home, you will have justified everything that I just addressed. You need to just go ahead and stop the car now. Folks, I can tell you one of the biggest life-changing moments of my spiritual life was found in a street corner of Mexico City when I jumped out of the truck and I got on my knees on a sidewalk and I spilled my guts before God. I said, God, I want you to know I am repenting of each one of those sins. And I confess that they were so blatantly obvious to a total stranger and I'm blindsided. You know why a pastor can stand in the pulpit and go months without being preached to? But be careful, it's easy to sit in the pew and get to a point where we adjust our own sins to a point where they're not noticeable enough to actually demand being confronted. And our spiritual growth kind of just levels off. Let me ask you this, Christian. When was the last time God was comforted because he saw you actually repenting. 